one myth which we do need to look at and hopefully overcome is this kind of myth of the autonomous individual, kind of disconnected from their society and their culture and their race and their opportunities and their class and all the rest. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Think Again, This Is Hell, Ideas from the CBC, an excerpt from Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In a general kind of way, um, I think that we Westerners are in a bubble, right? And um, that bubble is individualism. Because we're in this bubble, we have certain ways of looking at the world, which seem completely natural to us, um, so natural that it really does not occur to us that maybe other people see things differently. Um, and I do mean very differently. The premise of this book is that um, very broadly speaking, and I know I am speaking, this is an incredible generalization, um, but very broadly speaking, um, the, my premise is that in the West, um, we value the self very, very highly, and um, we prioritize the self and its needs in, in a way which is very un- like the rest of the world. Um, that is to say that, you know, if we, if we, we might imagine um, that here in the West, we have a self that looks a lot like an avocado with a very large pit. And we are very interested in developing that pit. We are interested in making sure that pit is able to express itself. And most other places in the world, and I do mean most other places in the world, and, and very strikingly in Asia, this is not at all the case. In Asia, the self that dominates, and again, you know, I know this is a broad generalization, but the self that dominates is a self which prizes flexibility. In the West, we people, the ideal is to be a soloist, like if you were a musician, right? Well, in the East, the ideal is to be a member of a chamber group. That's not to say that you don't have your own voice. That's not to say that you don't take initiative or anything like that. But it does mean that with every note, you are looking at the people around you and you are playing in concert with them, right? That's not to say that you are, everyone is playing the same thing, but you are very attuned to what everybody else is doing. And that way of being of the world feels entirely natural to you. And um, and really, it is inconceivable and very strange to you that some people walk around wanting to be a soloist. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And something that's interesting here is like, it's necessary when you're talking about this kind of thing to qualify that you're making generalizations because, of course, the, we are talking in big general terms. But I think there's something else going on there, which you talk a little bit about in the book as well, which is that not only is it uncomfortable for everybody to have their acculturated self called out as such, but also, I think there's a, a reluctance, like on the progressive left in the U.S. at this point, to pin down the self in any general way to culture, right? We want, we want the idea that it's completely flexible and that nobody can quite put their finger on us from the outside. 
You know, that's absolutely right. Well, because we believe that the avocado pit is what drives everything, right? And we don't like the idea that that actually we are um, very highly formed by things outside us, um, even though that is, in fact, the case. But also in the United States, of course, you know, it's all these kind of discussions are incredibly politically charged because, you know, any kind of discussion of a foundational difference can easily be abused. You know, my own view of this, um, you know, people have asked me, you know, are you supporting stereotypes? You know, I myself am, am anything but a stereotype. And, you know, when I look at people, I know they are anything but stereotypes. I think that um, the problem with stereotyping really lies with the people who stereotype. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, and I, and I don't, I don't think it's helpful to anyone to simply not say what's true. The objective truth is that all people really have both selves in them. Do you know what I mean? In other words, you have the capacity to ha- to be either self. And let me just say that, of course, it, we're really talking about a spectrum, but most people are kind of in the middle there somewhere. And also, um, people are situational. So, you know, people really do react very much to their immediate situation. And if you are an environment that is very supportive of the pit self, the big pit self, as I like to call it, you know, that is the self that you will be aware of. And if we were to run a psychological test on you at that moment, that is the self that, you know, would be evident. Um, and, 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 you know, anyone who's ever, you know, uttered the words East or West or is aware of just, you know, how big those categories are. Um, and let me just say that, you know, of course there are, you know, if you think about the East, if you just think about China, there are enormous differences just between North and South China, um, on the score, and I do mean measurable differences. Um, and then, you know, when we talk about the West, you know, we like to think, well, it's Europe and um, and the United States, but in fact, it's it's a kind of there are enormous gradations. With in a general kind of way, um, the levels of individualism going up as you move westward in Europe, and the level of individualism that we have here in America you know, higher than any anywhere in Europe. <laughs> and probably in the, hist- in the history of mankind, there have probably never been the kind of levels of individualism that we see in, in some parts of this country. And, and again, I do think it's important to realize that, you know, within our country, too, there are enormous differences. And I guess maybe that's to sort of say that, um, you know, the part of me that says, well, you know, is this supporting stereotypes or not? I'm thinking, well, actually, if you understand the framework, the net effect is not to make people who are different you seem more other, but actually to make them seem more understandable and more legible. And they're not just strange. They're operating on a different system, which a system which you can understand. I often think about the world in which I live today of animals and plants and nature's gifts. You are not free. You do not have the freedoms you think you have. You are not in control of your actions, so you are not responsible for said actions either. And in recognizing your lack of responsibility, you may have just had the most responsible and most revolutionary realization of your life. 
Here to explain Raul Martinez is author of Creating Freedom, The Lottery of Birth, The Illusion of Consent, and The Fight for Our Future. Welcome to This Is Hell, Raul. Hi, Chuck. Yeah, thanks for having me. You write that the language of freedom pervades our lives, framing the most urgent issues of our time and the deepest questions about who we are and who we wish to be. Freedom is a stirring ideal central to the concept of human dignity and visions of a fulfilling and meaningful life. Its universal appeal, its ability to unite and inspire, have long made it a powerful political weapon. In the scramble to define it, the ideal of freedom has been pushed, pulled, twisted, and torn expertly molded to suit the interests of those with the power to shape it. Do you believe that all the way across the political spectrum, from the farthest right to the farthest left, that the common goal we all have is having a fulfilling, meaningful, dignified life, and that access, uh, that across the uh, uh, spectrum, the shared belief is the way to that life is freedom, however we define it? I think there's a sense in which that's true. I think Freedom does seem to span the spectrum, but people think about it in very different ways. I think there's been actually quite a, a powerful and ongoing ideological battle to frame the issue and define it, um, because the way we think about these fundamental concepts like freedom and the kind of the elements which make up that concept, so from democracy is a form of freedom, the way we um, add meaning and the way we interpret these fundamental ideas really shapes the way we live our lives and, and the, the beliefs we have about politics and what's right and what's wrong and what kind of government we want. So, yes, I, I would say there's a sense in which, at least terminologically, people are committed to it, but there's huge disagreement um, when it comes to the substance beneath it. Is that what... Uh defines us as different nations, as different cultures, as different societies, the way in which we see freedom? I think it's one of the things that defines us. I think there's a clear sense in which there's, there's a kind of class-based um, element to how we interpret the idea. So I think it's a very convenient idea for the establishment, for the status quo, for those with wealth and power to promote an idea of freedom which is very individualized, to say you are responsible for your situation. If you're in a bad situation, that's because you haven't worked hard enough. And if you're, a, if you're very rich, if you're a billionaire, then clearly you're an incredible human being with lots of talent and who's made great choices, and you deserve all the privileges that you enjoy. Um, by taking the kind of the cordon of responsibility and tying it really closely around the individual, what I think we do is we exculpate the wider society. Um, so in, instead of blaming the institutions and, and the, the culture and all the forces which go into shaping a human being, their identity, their beliefs, their understanding, their capacity for critical thinking, th this notion encourages us to, to focus just on the individual and say, you know, we're going to blame you or praise you, and that's where kind of the buck stops. And I think that has a real... Um, ideological political component it favors certain interests in society to define freedom that way and it really undermines other interests so as we move across the spectrum towards the left wing you get a greater sense of the importance of institutional factors that a human being is really the product of many of the aspects in society which shape them from you know the religion you believe, for instance, is completely dictated as a child by the family that you're going to be born into. And that's true of so many um, 
frameworks that we inherit from our culture and our family, our schools, our media, the way we try and interpret and make sense of the world. It depends on where we're born, the time that we're born in, in a particular place, and, and the kind of ideas and people we're exposed to. So yeah, as you move across that spectrum, a greater appreciation of, of those factors um, comes into play. And I think what I'm arguing for is just to take it all the way across and to understand that luck plays a hugely decisive role in all of our lives. And the capabilities and capacities we have as individuals and our understanding of the world and what that means for the choices we make, it can be traced to so many forces which we don't have control over. Um, and the reason I think this is an important idea, an exciting idea, is I think it increases our capacity for empathy and compassion. Instead of simply blaming the individual or praising the individual, we begin to look for institutional structural reasons for behavior. So if there's too much crime, instead of just saying, well, that per, you know, criminals are terrible people, we look at the, the causes behind um, the kind of conditions which produce certain forms of behavior that we don't want in society, and then we can work on changing those conditions. Um, so I think there are a number of positives that can come out of seeing the world in this way, and one of which, of course, is just critical thinking. It encourages all of us to look really closely at the forces that have shaped us and, and to question them instead of just taking our identity as something given um, that we've chosen or created. When, of course, our identity is something which actually we inherit a little bit like our eye color and our, and our hair and, and our skin color. It's not something that we create or choose ourselves. It's something that is produced. Um, and so questioning the elements of our identity, our beliefs, our values, um, and our society, I think, is a, is a hugely important part to expanding the freedom that is available to us. So does focusing on the individual, does that lead to things like mass incarceration and still uh, mass incarceration not being able to solve our crime problem? Is that the kind of thing that happens when we embrace individualism as much as we do here in the States? I think so. I think it's very convenient to have whole sectors of society living in very impoverished conditions, especially with a background, you know, centuries of slavery and then racism, which feed into many of the power dynamics which still exist in our society. To have all of these conditions in play, which limit people's opportunities, um, which impoverish many of the... Um, uh, make it harder for fundamental needs to be met in early childhood and to be exposed to um, perhaps role models which are, are far more likely to, to lead you in certain directions. To kind of discount all of that, you know, it's very convenient. It allows us just to say, it's a criminal's fault, let's bung them in jail, they deserve to suffer, um, and good riddance kind of thing. Instead of saying, well, hang on, maybe there's some structural factors here. Um, maybe we shouldn't be so content, in, you know, if, if we happen to have a fair degree of privilege, and we haven't gone out and committed a crime or become a drug dealer or whatever we might be talking about, that may well be because of our privilege and the opportunities we've had and the examples and the fact um, that we had many more options than, than many other people. Um, and then, you know, there are, whole, there are genetic factors which come into play which can shape our predispositions for things like becoming an addict and um, the degree to which we are aggressive. So, yeah... I think if you adopt this framework um, where you take, in, you take conditions into account much more, when you look at the criminal justice system and the amount of people, especially in the States, 
that are thrown in jail, you say, well, you know, this is a corrupt system. It, it's it's inefficient. It's not actually um, seeming to work as as a massive deterrent. It's not like people are stopping committing crimes. So perhaps you know a different tack is necessary, one which addresses the fundamental conditions. We Russell H. Conwell, Baptist minister and lawyer, became a prophet of the gospel of wealth with his famous sermon, Acres of Diamonds. He told me the tradition concerning Acres of Diamonds, which I have used in my lecture 6,000 times. The sermon, preached some 6,000 times, promised listeners that wealth lay within any American's grasp if they would only accept their Christian duty to work hard and see God's hand through the workings of capitalism. Conwell reinterpreted his Calvinist inheritance for this new corporate age, equating poverty with sin and riches with dutiful virtue. I say you ought to be rich. You have no right to be poor, he concluded sharply. He would have had acres of diamonds. Preachers are grappling with one of the deepest moments of economic inequality in American history. In the midst of the Gilded Age, there's the very rich and the very poor. And churches are among the people debating, how do we decide who to give aid to? How do we decide who to help? And so this language of worthy and unworthy poor develops. And you can see it in any number of, um, my dad's a historian of Christmas, so I always had to read uh, little Christmas, Victorian Christmas accounts. It's those moments in which people try to give a Christmas present to a poor orphan, and he'll always say, oh no, not me. Surely I will earn it on my own someday. Uh, so there's a constant... Um, uh, rhetoric of who uh, who deserves the leg up. And in this, this deep bootstrapping American mythology takes deeper and deeper roots. And so pastors uh, like Conwell um, and others who are building up uh, universities and other uh, large structures are trying to appeal to businessmen who themselves are always asking, why am I successful or uh why is someone else doing better than me? And uh, and so you can see why positive thinking becomes part of the language of self-help. It becomes part of the manuals that businessmen read uh, when they have to endlessly rely on their own resources. But when we think positive thinking, we have to think largely white, largely middle class, sometimes to upper class, and endlessly bootstrapping. This is the deep American civil religion story about why some people succeed and most fail. And I have to say, I mean, I grew up in the latter part of the 20th century. Positive thinking is something that was almost uniquely identified with America in my mind. I mean, there were figures, people like Dale Carnegie, who, by the way, is no relation to Andrew Carnegie, but Norman Vincent Peale is the guy who comes immediately to mind. Can you talk about some of them and how they relate to the gospel of wealth from their positive thinking uh, school of thought? Sure. And with the Norman Vincent Peale, we have to imagine where he is. He's a famous New York pastor with a national ministry. He's uh, 
combining his insights with new developments in psychology. So he and a psychologist begin to work together and they found an institute. And you can see why these become complementary language, uh, languages of self-mastery, that if somebody has complete authority over the recesses of their mind, they'll be able to harness it all toward the good. Now what I want to talk to you about tonight is why positive thinkers get positive results. One reason that the positive thinker gets positive results is he is not afraid of a problem. As a matter of fact, he finds problems exciting. And so that spiritual and psychological language really entwine and become uh, a very convincingly positive account of what people can do. Uh, So you can see why a Norman Vincent Peale is a spiritual inspiration for, say, Donald Trump. It's it's an overarching uh, theology that imagines a very high anthropology, which is to say a very high view of human potential, um, the sense that with very little, uh, a, a self-mastered person can always uh, overcome any circumstance. And, uh, and a Norman Vincent Peale could do it because he was so winsome. He was the guy that you want at every dinner party because he tells – if you've ever read one of these books, they're entirely folksy and anecdotal. Mm. They'll offer a quick scripture, and then they'll say, I once met a baseball player. Trouble <laughs> with his swing. And, and in that, they'll always – they'll draw you in with the individual who struggles for a moment – gathers uh, new resources, and then finds a way around. And it's this kind of everyday uh, solutions that people wanted from a pastor with a huge smile on his face and a sense that his insights were scientifically grounded in a new discipline of psychology. I said, George, the other day I was up in the northern part of New York City in the Bronx on professional business if I may thus characterize it. And I was in an area up there where the head man told me that by actual count, there were 150,000 people and not a single one of them had a problem. The first enthusiasm I saw in George suffused his countenance and lighted up his eyes as he said to me, boy, that's for me. Lead me to this place. I said, okay, you asked for it. It's Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. So you can see why the power of positive thinking becomes a staple for like Amway salesmen or a paint can salesman who's on his own. These are the things that people need to turn to maybe instead of a Sunday devotional, but a little kind of shot in the arm that says, uh, you can do it. I believe in you. God believes in you. Just get back out there. What about people who don't automatically immediately fit into the fold? Uh, people who aren't necessarily automatically true believers, who maybe don't give enough money, um, who, who don't mm-hmm. uh, respond that way. What, what happens to them in the congregation or from the, the, the church leadership? Yeah, I think you've really anticipated just how much these are very totalizing environments. They really do ask people to be whole hog that, um, you know, to the point where some churches will ask for your financial records to ensure that you're giving 10%, for example, then plus more for things like Pastor's Appreciation Day or various others, or the other church holidays. So those people are the ones that very often have the hardest time is um, sometimes it means that they'll be very positive on Sunday mornings, but that they're the kind of person who 
sort of sends me an email on Sunday night that says that they're frustrated with what they're hearing. So they'll find other exhaust valves. Often they'll kind of drift around the periphery of the church. So, you know, sometimes I'd run into someone who uh, wasn't fully invested in its message of health and then would just kind of openly come to church with a giant cold and then sniffle and sneeze and not pray about it. <laughs> and, uh, those people, um, I think, were lovingly tolerated, but they're never going to be the people in power. They're never going to be the people at the center of the church. And very often they drift away. And I've interviewed people who say, well, I'll come back when I've got my life together. And that, I think, is one of the hardest parts, is it creates isolation. If it makes individuals out of every person, it says you are responsible for your faith, you are responsible uh, for your health and your wealth and ultimately your fate, then it does, uh, it does require that when people suffer, that they almost always suffer alone. God's healing promise was that all who ask will receive healing. But few who received God's blessings keep them. As Benny Hinn explained, quote, God's healing promise was that all who ask will receive healing. But few who received God's blessings keep them. We all know that in the presence of God there is healing, and I would give all that I have to see people healed. So I really believe it's the fault of the person. They have failed to enter God's presence and allow Him to touch them, unquote. One interviewee described his father's place of prominence within a faith church until he was stricken with cancer. Weekly, his father would go up to the altar for prayer. The church leaders stopped him at the altar one day and instructed him to stop coming for prayer. Quote, there's nothing else anyone can do for you, they said. You have to heal yourself. if you ever play video games, but uh, I play a lot of them. And there's a certain kind of ethos that's in a lot of video games, particularly those games like Call of Duty and the first-person shooter games that it's important to pay attention to. Because I feel like they really hit the spirit of the age. Or even games like Grand Theft Auto. These are big-selling video games, by the way. They're like the block... They're like Beyonce's. In those games, basically, you're this fighter who everyone has betrayed. Like the U.S. military betrays you, your family betrays you. Everyone is out to get you. And even your close military buddy or whoever. The storylines are always that ultimately everyone's screwing you. Certainly it is a safe position for a video game because it's safe across the entire ideological spectrum. But I also think it pinpoints a certain kind of mood of the era. Anti-establishment runs deep across so many currents. You know, and everyone's got their idea of who the big, the man is. And, you know, you look at even like a Coca-Cola ad and they'll encourage you to go in your cubicle and throw out your papers and get out there and just be free. So even like corporate America is encouraging us to fight the man. Do you remember those old ads and it was like the dweebish PC computer guy? And then the Mac guy was like this kind of red hot chili peppers hipster kid. And he's like, hey, you know, and he's the individual. and It's freedom. But I think even then, even the spirit of anti-establishment 
gets into the establishment. Just to say, because even these, you know, these big video games like Call of Duty, they're mega industries. They're not like some scrappy anti-establishment thing. I mean, they've got people that work on it the size of major films like Jurassic Park, I mean, big money. But everyone's anti-establishment, and certainly the mood in this country is deeply anti-establishment. Oh, well, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, because, of course, that anti-establishment thing is we are talking about individualism. We are talking about, you know, the very dominant narrative that we have in America, which is, you know, the individual versus society and, and all of society with the individual, of course, being the good guy and all of society being bad. Um, and, you know, but his point that this is a corporate product is very well taken. And in fact, of course, if we think about where this narrative came from, this narrative is very much a product of the Cold War. I mean, I'm not saying it began with the Cold War, but the answer is if we were to kind of track like, well, how many people thought this was, an, you know, an important narrative to them? Um, I mean, we don't have such a graph, but I think that if we did, we would see a very sharp upward turn during the Cold War. And so the answer is, you know, our idea that we stand against evil, and that that's an original stance, you know what I mean, that, that that's a stance which is which has to do with our nature, is actually the product of U.S. propaganda. You know, I mean, I think that as the U.S. became uh, more and more embroiled, <laughs> um, you know, with the Soviet Union, um, our way of differentiating ourselves was to, you know, to generate these two narratives. You know, we were Jackson Pollock, you know, uh, they were robots. Right. And um, that that um, the government very actively promoted that. Um, so meaning that, you know, they were in there, they were promoting art shows that, you know, that featured people like Jackson Pollock, the other abstract expressionists. Um, they were actually supporting even, you know, literary magazines, right. you know, right. <laughs> where this kind of narrative was was being um, advanced. Um, and they were literally buying up 50% of the run of certain, certain literary journal, journals in order to keep them afloat. And sure enough, their propaganda efforts paid off. You know, I mean, you know, the efforts were mostly international, but they were domestic as well. So that in order to fight our fight with the Soviet Union, you know, not only did we have to convince other nations in the world that the Soviet Union, you know, were these evil collectivists. And that is, by the way, one of the reasons I avoid the word collectivism in my book, you know, as best I can, is because, you know, the political overtones are just overwhelming. You know, collectivism is bad. But the answer is that they promoted it abroad, but they, they had to promote it domestically as well. So, you know, what this um, guy NATO is saying is a corporate product. And, you know, before that, it was, you know, is simply U.S. propaganda. Right. And we've we've all bought it. We bought our own propaganda and we brought our we're now buying this corporate product that that he's absolutely right. You know, I mean, that's, you know, that's enabling us to feel great and kind of powerful as we sit there at the video game, you know, through which they are making a very handsome profit. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's ir ironic. Yeah, I mean, it's the, like there's obvious irony in in an enormous corporate, uh, enormous businesses built on the idea that you are a rugged individualist against the machine. Exactly. Um, but, exactly. you know, while all that, I can see the obvious truth in, in what you're saying, I mean, I also think back to the beginning of America, right? I mean, like it, it is a foundational idea of this country 
that we don't want to be ruled. Right. I mean, that essentially we want individual freedom. We want, you know, I mean, and then of course the founding fathers argued over what exactly that might mean. But, you know, we right. overthrew a tyrant. So there was that. Well, you know, it's one thing to be free of a tyrant. And it's another thing to imagine that you can live without society. Sure. That's a kind of turn we made with people like Emerson and Thoreau, you know. Right. There's a difference between not wanting to be taxed without representation, right? Um, that right. still assumes that there's a government there and you might not like the rules, you know, under which you are being subjugated, but that's not to say you reject the idea of government altogether. And there's a big difference between that and kind of, you know, um, a more anarchist view, you know, which is that, you know, we don't want any government or, you know, I'm not saying that Emerson and Thoreau thought that, but I think that some of the ideas that we have now that your expert NATO was talking about in his tape are that, you know, that when he sort of says like, you know, all guys are bad guys, you know, like it's the individual versus everyone and all society. Right. You know, and, um, you know, he's sort of saying like, this is an amazing level of individualism. Um, and I would have to agree. It's one thing right. to stand up and sort of say, basically, this is not fair. That's one thing. That's you know, right. like it's a, your, your, your aim is to uh, generate some new form of social order based on rules that are fair. Well, that's one thing. It's another thing to say, wow, you know, it is me against everyone and me against right. all social order. I'm thinking like, wow, you know, first of all, it's very sad. Um, very, very sad. And and also it's a fantasy because we are just not evolved, you know, um, to, to live by ourselves, you know, with no other people. And, and not to not to be able to trust anyone else is just a really a tragic thing. It's something unattainable that you can't You're right that facing up to the limits on our freedom explodes a number of persistent myths, myths surrounding individual responsibility, justice, political democracy, and the market. Some of these myths persist because they advance the interests of those in power, others because they flatter us, offering false comfort. All come at a price. Each is based on assumptions about the world, some some of which fly in the face of evidence and logic. Do we believe in myths or lies that lack evidence is are completely absent of logic and reason and simultaneously keep us from being free? I think so. So this is one of the key ideas of my book. I try and explore at least two fundamental myths about freedom, which I think lie at the heart of our society. And the first is this idea of the the complete autonomy and responsibility of the individual, about how much power we actually have over our identities and who we are. I think that it's grossly exaggerated in our society, and the conditions which shape us are almost completely ignored, um, thereby just removing responsibility of the wider society for creating individuals 
So I think the most fundamental, most important aspect or function of any society is the production of individuals. You know, what kind of people are you going to create? What kind of values are they going to have? What kind of habits are they going to develop? Um, and that's really something which is decided and produced by the set of institutions in your society, your education system, your family, the kinds of religions you have, the media. These produce particular people with particular beliefs, particular ways of perceiving the world. Now, from within that framework of looking at the world, any one individual, it feels very natural. It feels like they're, they're, their own beliefs, that in a sense they've created those beliefs. But it's a bit of an illusion. I mean, take any baby born in America and move it to other parts of the world. So, for example, take a baby born in New York, and if you moved that baby to Palestine, they're going to see the world very differently. They're going to grow up with a very different set of beliefs and loyalties and values. And if you move it to China and um, Spain and elsewhere, each time you're going to get a very different uh, kind of cultural environment. So I think one myth which we do need to look at very seriously and hopefully overcome is this kind of myth of the autonomous individual, kind of disconnected from their society and their culture and their race and their opportunities and their class and all the rest. I think that's a, that's a dangerous myth, and I think it actually feeds into the grossly unequal society that we have. It appears to legitimize the idea that the rich deserve their wealth and the poor deserve their poverty, and we can blame the criminals and, 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 and praise those who succeed, at least according to the values of our system. So I think that's the first myth. And there's much more to say about all of that, but I'll move on. Um, the second myth, I, I think, is about free markets. There's been this really embedded idea at the heart of our culture now, for, I'd say at least since, um, you know, for a good century, but a kind of more potent form for the last 40 years, um, that free markets produce freedom. And they, they produce political freedom. They're, they're one and the same. You know, if you want a function, well-functioning democracy, then you need to free up the markets. I think it's a very dangerous idea. I mean, there are so many elements of markets which are amoral. They have a strong tendency to concentrate wealth. They have massive externalities, which means that a lot of transactions which take place in the market produce these huge costs, such as environmental devastation, which are grossly inefficient and very damaging to society and undermine the idea that markets actually are, uh, are good at allocating in an efficient way um, resources across society. Um, and, and the concentrations of wealth that it produces just removes power from the de democratic political realm and gives it to private entities like corporations and individuals. Um, so as you'll be um, amply aware of in the United States, um, Mass media is owned by a handful of major corporations, and they control most TV, most film, most newspaper, most radio. And that's an incredible amount of power. And so what you're getting is a filtered version of reality, filtered through the lens of profit-seeking corporations. Um, and so to leave these core functions of society, like delivering news, educating people, um, running prisons, and on and on, to leave those core functions to profit-seeking entities whose only function legally is to maximize profit for their shareholders um, creates a huge kind of conflict of interest 
which seriously erodes the possibility for a meaningful democracy in which people have a say of their lives. People make um, are able to take part and participate in making the decisions that truly affect their lives. So I think these two myths about free markets and the over-exaggeration of the freedom of the individual, I think they come together to help to justify and legitimize a grossly unequal system and one which is quite inefficient and in many ways irrational because it doesn't help us realize the goals which as a society so many of us hold, you know, clear goals, just a safer world for our children, one in which we don't destroy the environment, one in which there is a degree of equality and it doesn't all just come down to, well, if you're born into a rich family and you inherit millions, then you're going to have this kind of life. And if you're born over here, then there's a very high chance that you're going to end up in prison, where that kind of birth isn't destiny. Um, So yes, that's what's drawn me to trying to expose some of these myths surrounding freedom so that actually we can work to creating a more meaningful freedom. For maidens in the morning who wake with reddened eyes Remembering lovers lost and rising with the lark's first cries And never tasting love again till youth is almost gone Well even you will beat the drums of freedom For beggars on the city streets that sink themselves so low and wonder free or fancy where it pleased the wind to blow I'll wager you a winter's night inside my feather bed That even you can't beat the drums of freedom Training. Training is everything. Training is all there is to a person. We speak of nature. It is folly. There is no such thing as nature. What we call by that misleading name is merely heredity and training. We have no thoughts of our own, no opinions of our own. They are transmitted to us, trained into us. All that is original in us, and therefore fairly creditable or discreditable to us, can be covered up and hidden by the point of a cambric needle, all the rest being atoms contributed by and inherited from a procession of ancestors that stretches back a billion years to the Adam clan, or grasshopper, or monkey, from whom our race has been so tediously and ostentatiously and unprofitably developed. And as for me, all that I think about in this plodding sad pilgrimage, this pathetic drift between the eternities, is to look out and humbly live a pure and high and blameless life, and save that one microscopic atom in me that is truly me. The rest may land in Sheol, and welcome for all I care. created and are working really hard to create, and it's actually one of the things that I think people are most alarmed at seeing threatened right now, is that since 
the Enlightenment and especially the 19th century. Those were periods when we were really pushing progress to accelerate, trying new social experiments, succeeding, and huge numbers of people were suffering as a result. Huge number, you know, the, the life expectancy was dropping in cities where people were being worked to death in deadly factories with horrible chemicals and colonialism and the enslavement of native peoples all over the world and slave labor and factory labor caused huge amounts of destruction and suffering, which were consequences of the push toward progress. Both the, you know, enterprising trying to start businesses and the unfortunate cultural side effect of since we have a superior culture Europe says we will impose this by force on others we discovered how terrible that was we worked to try to end it it's ended in some ways and not in others and as a result of it we worked hard especially in the 20th century to develop a better social safety net and I don't mean the social safety net that when you're a middle-class factory worker and you get injured pays your workman's comp. I mean the social safety net that there are social workers looking out for things, that cops visit factories to make sure the conditions aren't horrific, that we have a bunch of checks in place to try to prevent the secondary consequences of progress from hurting people as rampantly as they did before. That was one of the things our society created in response to what we learned in the 19th century. And people who had experienced that 19th century really understood why we needed all of those checks. But now there are a lot of people with power, both because they're in office and because they're voting for the people who are in office, who never experienced what it was like without those safety features. Mm -hmm and see only the negative side effects of those safety features, that they require resources, that they're time-consuming, that they result in paperwork. They do all of these things while also solving problems that people don't remember very much anymore. So people talk about, you know, why do we have, so, have to have so much regulation? I'm just a bakery. Why do I have <laughs> to have constant health inspections? And the answer is, well, because last century bakeries were putting lead in the bread to make it look white and everybody died and it was bad and we don't want that again and there were lots of people who were put in different positions in society where they had no help nothing to turn to and really no escape for very bad circumstances we made a whole lot of social institutions designed to prevent that to mitigate that, to watch out for that. They've been working. They've been working so well that a lot of people don't know why we needed them in the first place. And therefore, there is a willingness to try to dismantle them. That no one I know who is a historian will ever sympathize with. Because we know how terrible it was to live in the past. We don't want to. And and social progress as well. And and I think one of the things that I it it hurts a lot to see how much social progress we still have to make. It's terrible to see what rape culture is like in America right now. It's terrible to see what race relations are like in America right now. But this is a society where if you know I'm female and if I were to have premarital sex, 
my father would not be obliged to kill me. That's great. And that's actual progress. That's actual progress that we have actually made and that isn't slipping right now. And yes, we have miles and miles and miles to go before race, racial or sexual equality will be the kinds of realities that we want. But that doesn't mean we haven't made real progress as well. We've made progress. It's just harder to see when you're zoomed in and seeing how bad it still is. Cause you know we're making progress every day. In the most profound and yet subtle ways The sleeping giant no longer slumbers Humanity is finally awake Oh, but it's not the end It's not the end We have not reached our final There's no tomorrow. How could we make it better for today? You write about the myth of responsibility, but myths have roles. So what role does responsibility play in our civilization, our society? What do we lose if all of a sudden we confronted the myth of responsibility and realized it was a myth? This is a question I, I, I spend some time on in the book, and I try and pick apart um, steadily and slowly, because I think there are so many fears and um, concerns which arise when you begin to question um, the traditional notion of individual responsibility. And the misunderstandings surrounding the issue are vast, and I, I understand it. When I first was developing my ideas in this area and researching, I had many concerns too, but if you stick with the idea, if you become more familiar, you begin to see everything that we really value, um, you know, meaning in life, truth, morality, um, community, and, and um, the desire for maybe a, a fairer society, a more democratic society, and art, and, and all the things that make life what it can be, um, they are unthreatened. In fact, many of those things are enhanced. I think it's a real push in the, in the direction of humility and compassion and empathy when we begin to understand that, oh, we can't just hold the individual completely responsible for the way that they are and the situations they find themselves in. Um, we're pushed to try and understand someone instead of judge them. And I think that can lead to actually a deeper morality, um, which makes me very hopeful. But we do lose some things, but the things we lose, I think we probably could do you know better without um we leave a system which allows uh those who have great privilege to feel entitled so it's a lot harder to believe that you deserve your privilege when you understand the key role of luck in our society it's a lot harder to justify one country or one class or or one people controlling a hugely disproportionate amount of wealth and power um when you understand that the root of that is ultimately luck. It's not that one particular group or nation or people deserve more than others. No one deserves more than others. We all come into this world with a set of needs and we're going to exit the world at some point. And in that beautiful brief gap that we call life, 
we all deserve to to have the opportunity to flourish, to love, to be loved, and and to do work which we find meaningful and and um, invigorating. Now that's true across the board. Of course, the opportunities across society don't allow that for many people, and it's just huge inequality and huge injustice, which is justified by this myth. So I'm happy about losing aspects of um, uh, kind of traditional assumptions in society which follow from the myth. But everything that I consider valuable in life, I think, is either enhanced or or maintained um, while uh, rejecting the notion of. Uh, individual responsibility. You also talk about the uh, empowering nature of realizing that we have no real freedom. But in realizing that we have no real freedom, then we have no real responsibility. So how is the most responsible thing that we can do realizing that we have no responsibility for our actions? I think it comes down to how we define these words. Cause language traps us in many ways because we use the same word um, to mean uh, very different things in different contexts. Um, so I think we are driven to do good things by our values, by what we think is important, inspiring, and beautiful. Um, it, I'm drawn towards a world which is, you know, fairer, it matters to me that there are people out there starving and that there are people homeless. Um, it's not a belief that I created myself and can take ultimate responsibility for myself that makes me care about the fact that there are children suffering, um, the fact that we are destroying the environment for future generations. Um, what makes me care about those things are my values. And, and values are independent of the way we think about responsibility. They come from our culture, from probably our biological history, um, and, you know, the examples that we find in, in art and literature and religion and, and in our families and, um, and media. And so I want to, in terms of creating a better world, it's focusing on our values and a map of reality which allows us to serve those values in the most effective way. Um, so that's, for me, why the two things are independent. We we, on the one hand, can say that we are not truly responsible for the way we are. We didn't create ourselves. Um, and, you know, this is a very old idea. Although it's not a huge part of our society, I, and I think there are good reasons, as I've kind of talked about already, why this myth has endured so long, because it's very politically useful. You know, from Darwin to Albert Einstein um, to Stephen Hawking to a whole host of biologists, uh, thinkers, physicists, and philosophers, you know, this idea has been embraced, but it hasn't entered, it hasn't permeated the mainstream of our culture. Um, and what's interesting, if people are worried about kind of the moral implications of adopting this idea, there have been a number of studies which show that the stronger our belief in responsibility, the more likely we are actually to blame victims, um, want harsher punishments for people, and the more likely we are to view the world as it is, as fair and just. So I think if we're worried about moral behavior, we should be worried about the myth of responsibility because it encourages these kind of punitive attitudes and complacent attitudes which say, yes, there's gross inequality, but that's just um, because people deserve what they get. 
Raul, um, one, one last yeah. question for you, Raul. We've been speaking with Raul Martinez. He is author of Creating Freedom, The Lottery of Birth, The Illusion of Consent, and The Fight for Our Future. Raul is a philosopher, artist, and award-winning filmmaker. In fact, his book, Creating Freedom, is also a documentary. One last question for you, Raul, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You point out okay. how the belief that we are ultimately responsible for the choices we make is at the heart of our judicial system at the heart of the U.S. belief that those who are rich deserve it and those who are poor deserve their fate as well. You argue this incoherent way of thinking makes it far easier to justify inequalities of wealth, power, and opportunity. And you write, a modern secular manifestation of the responsibility myth is found in the promise of the American dream that anyone can become rich and those who do deserve it, whereas those who don't only have themselves to blame. So, Raul, is the American myth, or American dream, (laughs) I already stopped myself, is the American dream not only a myth, but a dangerous myth that leads to inequality? I do, yeah, I think it is. I think it's a mechanism of control. If you get people to believe that anyone can achieve anything within that society, then what you're essentially asking of people is to accept that you have a just, fair, egalitarian society, one in which it's only the choices of the individual which determine where you end up. So it completely changes the topic and moves our attention away from questions of inequality, questions of distribution, questions of racism, questions of sexism, questions of how the whole society is structured. And instead, it encourages us us to say, just look at the individual. And in a way, it's a very attractive idea because it appears superficially to be very empowering. It says, wow, me as an individual, all I have to do is work harder, try harder, and I can achieve anything. And it's, you know, that's an attractive message. But actually, it's not truly empowering. True empowerment comes from knowledge and understanding um, through shaping our picture of reality so it's actually more accurate. When we have that knowledge, when we have a better map of reality, we have a much better chance at getting to where we want to go. And the truth is, the American dream is a myth. It doesn't exist. And there are people working extremely hard at the bottom of society, two, three jobs, showing incredible courage, incredible endurance, huge character, and they're not rewarded. Um, You know, they have enormously difficult lives, a struggle simply to get the basics of life, to have a mortgage, to have a home, to feed their children, to afford health care. So I would have to say that at least now, and I would say for the last few decades, it's been a very dangerous myth, one which needs to be rejected. But it's a dream which is worth fighting for. It's certainly worth fighting for the kind of society in which everyone does have the opportunity to flourish. Um, so I accept it as a dream, but it's, <laughs> it hasn't been a reality for a long time. <laughs> 